Welcome to News in Context. I'm Gina Valeria. In this episode, we explore how trauma and stress impact journalists and an evolving sensibility among those who practice journalism that self-care and safety must become more integral parts of the work of informing the public, bringing information to light, and holding power to account. This conversation had begun prior to 2020, but it's come to focus this year with the COVID-19 pandemic, journalist safety being threatened by authorities during social justice demonstrations, coverage of natural disaster after natural disaster, and a general deterioration of public trust coupled with a president who spent four years calling the credibility of journalists into question. My guest is Dr. Alana Newman, McFarland Professor of Psychology at the University of Tulsa and Research Director for the DART Center for Journalism and Trauma, which advocates for and educates about ethical, thorough, and compassionate coverage of trauma stories and those affected. that we're more openly talking about self-care and more openly acknowledging the trauma than we were when I was actively doing it? I think that's true. So when the Dark Center started, I think the stigma about mental health in general was much more difficult. And the Dark Center is dedicated to, you know, helping people create ethical, compassionate, victim-centered journalism. And at least in the U.S. context, and and we are international, but in the U.S. context, people were more than willing to talk about how to interview a survivor sensitively. But when it came to talking about the impact on oneself, people were very hesitant. And I think the issue of talking about how difficult this work can be was much more stigmatized. And I think that for many reasons, that um, the stigma is finally turning. And it's really interesting because in many ways, journalists are the last first on the scene group to start this conversation. Police were ahead of uh, firefighters, but journalists were very reticent um, to talk about these issues. So I do think that's true. And I think in general, since the pandemic started, uh, everyone is more willing to talk about not necessarily trauma responses, but just more um, how do you deal with chronic stress that we all, you know, are dealing with as a as a culture, as a world? Yeah. Great point, because this is not just journalists. This is everybody right now. And that distinction between the immediate trauma of a massive breaking story and that long-term chronic stress of covering uh, those car accidents over and over again, those fires over and over again, can lead to some similar outcomes. You mentioned the pandemic. Was there any other shift in why journalists finally decided to be open to talking about this? Well, I think there are a number of things. I think the generational differences. I think that younger journalists are more willing to talk about their reactions. I think the whole notion about what does objectivity look like, first-person journalism, citizen journalism. I mean, there's a whole sort of change in first-person accounts, I think. And I think some of it's just a generational approach. In the U.S. context, um, journalism has become more dangerous. I mean, it's always been dangerous for certain kinds of work. I mean, people knew going to a war zone, they would cover those kinds of things. But, you know, now in the U.S., it's very dangerous to cover a political rally. Who would have ever thought that? Um, the discrimination and the um, just the the incredible anti-media. You know, journalists used to be the people who were protected 
if you said you were a journalist, uh, everyone would try to keep you safe. Now, if you say you're a journalist, in many contexts, you're attacked. So I think that the assault on journalists and on um, basically freedom of expression has really changed some of that conversation. I think in general, acceptance of mental health problems has changed as a culture. I think trauma-related problems are less stigmatized, thanks in part to some of the coverage actually on journalism. So there's a whole variety of reasons. I also think that, you know, in the last 20 or 30 years, we have better psychological interventions. The the point you made about coverage. When you're going to cover a story, initially we right, wouldn't put ourselves in the story or wouldn't relate that to ourselves. But the more and more we started covering issues of mental health and issues of stress and trauma, there's something there about uh, about turning the mirror back on and, and recognizing what I'm feeling that way. And that's an important point and lends itself to the importance of coverage. And so I guess what I'm asking you is how important it is, is it to cover those stories and also at the DART Center, you do a lot of work about guidance, uh, tips for how to cover it. So I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about that coverage, the importance of it, and how DART helps support that. I'm a clinical psychologist, and I, I'm a professor, and I teach, um, and I've, I've been a trauma expert for a long time. So I teach about trauma, train people how to become clinicians, and all of that is very important in addressing mental health. But journalists can make such a greater impact by the stories they tell to a larger group of people than I probably will ever touch as a clinical psychologist. Journalists have a role in really um, explaining the experiences of people and helping people make choices. We have to make a lot of choices about uh, laws that involve survivors, that involve mental health. And so journalists have such an impact, I think, on societal understanding to tell compassionate, important stories about people who've experienced violence, injustice, is such an important task. And it's always been the task of journalists, but it's not been the task to think about it from a trauma frame. That's a long way of saying the DART Center is dedicated to helping journalists with the tools that they might need. Traditional journalism, and it's changing, has always had very effective tools in talking to people who are empowered. And many of the rules and the operating rules make a lot of sense when you're talking to someone who's in government or someone, they don't make the same sense when you're talking to somebody who's been violated and disempowered. And so really getting journalists to think about, well, what, what craft tools do you need to adjust? What do you need to do a little bit differently? Whereas um, spending a lot of time developing trust doesn't make sense if you're talking to your mayor necessarily. It might. Yeah. Yeah. You, you have an official relationship where everybody has an expectation that they're supposed to play a role versus when you're on a scene with a, a private citizen who's going through a trauma. That's a very different scenario. Right. And you need a different toolbox for that scenario and you need different tools there. I'm also you know, a researcher and a scientist. So what I do is say, what in my toolbox about trauma can be helpful to you as you tell stories and ask people questions, what things make sense and what don't. And as a center, that's what we do. What are the things we need to know about covering suicide, covering community violence, talking to someone 
who's been violated, talking to someone at the scene of a disaster. Some of the, the great data that you've put together or that DART has put together, what exactly is a traumatic event and what exactly is trauma? And so, of course, those, like as we said earlier, the those automobile accidents, the fires, and then, you, you know, all the way to war and disaster. And we're experiencing right now, uh, not, I, I'm in California, I'm in Northern California, every year fires, yeah. you know, every year evacuations. And it's getting worse. And it's getting worse. And, and that is so traumatic. And, and the journalists who cover it are often in the community and also affected, even if they're not, they're empathetic to the people who are affected. The Gulf states are experiencing hurricanes. And as you said, we've got social justice issues with the Black Lives Matter movement that have always been there, but now we're actively trying to push back on. And that's led to not only trauma among affected uh, parties, people of color, women, but the journalists who are covering are also now not only experiencing the empathetic trauma of the people they're covering, but the trauma of being targeted in, in those protests as well. And then we've got that slow boil of trauma or that active stress of a, a, of a presidency that whether whatever side you're on is definitely led to polarization and um, concerns about democracy. And then finally, the COVID-19. I would deconstruct that a little bit. We tend to talk about trauma and use that word to describe everything sometimes, from everyday stress to other stress. But technically, mental health experts, particularly using sort of the diagnostic manual from psychiatry, define psychological trauma in a very, very limited way. In the world of psychology, psychiatry, mental health, it has to be something where there's threatened death, serious injury, or sexual violence. For journalists, it comes in sort of two or three forms, as we were just talking about. There can be being directly there, being the direct target. Then there's witnessing the traumatic events as they're occurring to others. So, you know, journalists are professional witnesses, so they're seeing it as professional witnesses. There is also what I would say is indirect trauma. In my view, empathetically engaging with someone who's experienced violence, particularly when you're not trained to deal with all those emotions, is another form of exposure that's a, probably a little bit different in its effects, but there is an effect of that, as you were talking about. Then there's the stress of being a journalist under the current conditions, occupational job stressors, deadlines, the changing industry, the reliance more and more on um, freelancers. I mean, we can go through all sorts of ways in which the industry itself is stressful, shift work, dealing with editors. I mean, there's a whole series of stressors just of the work, which can be very satisfying. One of my students found that it isn't trauma, it's trauma plus those occupational stressors together that sometimes makes it more toxic, as you were saying. And then there are ongoing chronic kinds of stressors as well. So I would just disentangle a few of those because I think they're different solutions and different ways of thinking about, well, what kind of training, how do you help if you separate those? Yeah. So let's do that. Let's go through and talk about the first category of, of traumas and, and what are some things that journalists can do to cope with those or that journalism students can do to prepare themselves? Let's start with direct. I mean, obviously, one thing that has also changed and I think has made psychological trauma more present is safety training. I mean, it used to be that hostile environment training was for the very few. And I think now it's more of an industry standard. It's something now more and more students are getting. 
But as part of safety training, my students and I, we looked at training and what people said is that lots of these um, trainings, they're useful, but they don't include enough about psychological preparation and they don't include enough about gender violence um, and specific needs regarding those areas. And just like one would make a plan for the physical, what do you do when you're in physical danger? The same things come, what do you do when you're in psychological danger? So planning and being aware of the signs sort of for, for the direct exposure. Then it's the same thing I would say for witnessing those events. And there's evidence to show that training in general makes people more resilient. And so feeling prepared and also having a sense of control, even if you don't have control, having a perceived sense of, of what do you do, not second guessing can make it much easier. I mean, that's why most first responders drill is so that when they're in, in a chaotic moment, they, they know what to do. Um, and in some ways, the ethical issues that one faces in, in those kinds of situations are very hard. And that's another thing that we've been discovering about resiliency is that um, having a moral code and having an ethical awareness can really guide you. Um, so I would say that being an ethical journalist is also a way of coping, which is if you know that you're acting responsibly um, in the best interest of journalism, that that can be really um, a helpful way to respond. Oh, I really love that. I, I already believe that. Yeah, I'm glad you called it out. There's been research done with, you know, super responders, you know, special forces, people who, you know, have their legs blown off and then run marathons. And one of the things they found for resiliency is having a, a moral code really makes you stronger, is that that is a way to be resilient. And so we at the DART Center really said that, you know, ethical training is something that we really believe does make a journalist stronger because then you don't have regrets. There's a new concept in mental health called moral injury. And it's this idea that instead of a psychological injury, it's been mostly applied to military, that there can be a, a spiritual wound that needs to be healed in a different way when you feel guilt about acts of omission or commission, particularly in, in war zones. I also think this, and I have a student who's starting to look at this, and there's been a couple of studies just out looking at the issue of uh, moral injury in journalists. To what degree is there moral injury if you feel like you haven't uh, behaved ethically? And um, a few studies have shown that ethical regrets predict some psychological distress in journalists when they've covered things. It's one component. Yeah, I really appreciate that. And I also uh, appreciate the idea of building resiliency by preparing. One thing I've started to do, and again, this is fairly new, but in the past couple of semesters is include in my journalism classes, teaching about online harassment and and really calling that out and naming it and being intentional about talking about it so that students know this can be a part of the landscape, especially for women or people of color. And here are resources and, and here's how some people are coping with it. Here's how some people are not coping with it yet because we're trying to figure it out. But I feel like the students really... Um, want that. As you said, it's a different mindset about um, what they think is important. I love that these students speak up, honestly. I think it's pushing us to deal with these things better. You're listening to News in Context. I'm Gina Valeria. We're talking with Dr. Alana Newman, McFarland Professor of Psychology at the University of Tulsa and Research Director for the DART Center for Journalism and Trauma. Vicarious trauma is really the area that is, is hardest for journalists. You know, when I train clinical psychology students, the concept is you have to 
take care of yourself in order to take care of other people. But they're trained in the issues of emotional literacy. And what I find really interesting is that the training of journalists, we don't start talking about emotions till we talk about audience. And in my field, we talk about how do emotions affect your data gathering, the information you solicit, the way you ask questions. And I really think that the training for journalists, we need to have a conversation because I believe that in order, and I'm a scientist, in order to be more objective, whatever that is, one needs to be aware of their emotional state because that affects the way that you collect information and the way you interact with your sources and the way you design your story. And journalists are trained to record, but not on the emotional impact of bearing witness. And you are professional witnesses. You are there, you are the eyes and ears of society. You are there to tell us and interpret what's happening in the world. And I think it's really important to start training and making people aware of what does it mean to bear witness? And how do you prepare to bear witness? How do you take care of yourself? What are the signs that you need a little break? And how do you continue to bear witness? But I think in general, the notion is one must have a little more emotional literacy on the front end and thinking about how one's own position and emotional responses affect the work. You bring that up. The one that stands out, obviously, is 9-11 for me. Um, I was in the Bay Area, I mean, in California. And yet, you know, I rolled out of bed. It happened in front of my eyes. I was the web producer. So I hopped on from home and started updating. Then I finally got myself into the newsroom. And I remember sobbing in front of the computer as I typed and as I talked to uh, sources and but doing my job, you know, like I'm doing my job. This is my and I felt useful, you know, because I'm informing, you know. So anyway, there were I guess there was a lot for me in that in, in during that week in particular, um, in that I felt useful. I understood what my mission was, and um, I go I think about Jay Rosen and Press Think. They talk about you should know what you're if you know why you're there. Yes, and personal mission is another resiliency factor. Is remembering is having a sense of purpose and knowing while you do what you do. It helps you understand and get through the trauma. But I remember at the end of that week, I was supposed to see a friend and I was just, I'm like, I feel like a toxic waste dump. And I went for, God, just a 40 minute workout. And that changed everything. And so that's one point. But then the other point was the trauma for me that I didn't realize was trauma. It lasted for years. And I remember at, at points I'd be talking to friends who weren't journalists and every time 9-11 came up, I'd get really somber and I'd be, and, and they're like, you know, yeah, it happened. It was awful, but gosh, it's like for you, like it, it just happened. And I'm like, no, I know, you know, and it's, um, and I remember it took me a lot of, I don't even know if I ever fully figured it out, but, but it, it, it did stay with me on a level that it didn't, it didn't with my friends, even though it was just as important to them. I think a lot of um, young journalists have those experiences with no training, no thoughts about it. And the 9-11s are coming more and more often. I remember when Columbine happened, I was a young, young journalist. And I remember sitting in the newsroom covering it and being like, I just want to go to Colorado and, and hug these kids. Like, I, what am I doing here? Why am I not there? And then, of course, the school shootings happen more and more often. And it's just as tragic. But the response changes, right? It's like, oh, this is part of the landscape now. But it's still traumatic and awful. We have much better ideas about how to cover school shootings that come from journalists. And uh, so far, it doesn't look like um, we've progressed as much as we thought we would. So it's interesting as well that the craft for changing it hasn't changed all that much. Yeah. And that's too bad. <laughs> and that's too bad. But I think your point is real. I, I'm so glad you said it because the 9-11 the was this uniquely awful and big. And yet 
that awful bigness is happening a lot now in, in our world, which makes this conversation we're having, I think, all the more important. How would you train journalists or guide them in in dealing with this vicarious empathy and trauma? Getting training on how to interview, how to create some boundaries. Um, when is it okay to do certain things? When isn't it? There's lots of issues about interviewing um, and creating relationships because some relationships you have with sources are life long, long-term how do you navigate those? And nobody ever talks about them because you're not supposed to have them, but you have them. So having those conversations about what are appropriate source to journalists relationships, uh, knowing your coping skills, knowing your vulnerabilities too, you know, in other fields, we, we recognize that if athletes have broken a, a leg and they're more vulnerable. We teach them how to sort of do their job, knowing that they have a bad ankle or whatever, but acknowledging that we all have those little, those vulnerabilities. And so what extra things do we need to do to keep doing the work? Reporters and just with base rates who've been sexually assaulted, who've been abused in childhood. I mean, we all have come to the world with vulnerabilities and many of those are stigmatized vulnerabilities that journalists aren't gonna talk about. Um, and it doesn't make them better or worse as a journalist. It's just a vulnerability that needs to be acknowledged so that they can shore up to tell a story about something. When we've gone through traumas such as those, sometimes that can guide us into making sure that those traumas and the uh, issues surrounding them can come to light. When you have more voices and more experiences, you, you recognize that more things need to be talked about. Um, and I'm hoping we continue in that direction because I think that... The traumas that people have gone through, whether it's sexual assault or whether it's racism, we need to grapple with those. And if we don't have the right people in the newsroom, we're not going to grapple with them in the way we should. You know, news coverage about sexual assault has really improved over time because I think more women are in the newsroom, because more survivors are in the newsroom, whether they're acknowledged or not. And people have started to tell the stories from the perspective of survivors, from perspectives of family members as opposed to telling it from the police reports or the perpetrator's voice. And so I think victim-centered reporting really is really important um, and it's important to support, but it's harder. So that hard, How uh, is there anything you can say about this is harder to do than just rewriting a news release, but here's how you can approach it? Like all reporters, it's finding, you were talking about, it's finding the angle, and I think it's important to tell stories from different perspectives um, and with respect for people. And I think the other piece that's a little bit different and ties to something we were talking about before, which is when you're talking to people who have been abused or who have lost control, you get a better story and you get better information if you allow your source to have some control, whether it's, do you wanna sit here versus here, taking longer with your story. And then the other thing I always ask people to do or journalists to do when they're telling a story is to do a gut check at the end and say, okay, if this were a person in my family, would I tell the story any differently? Not in terms of accuracy, but would your tone change? And that's a good gut check to say, okay, am I sensationalizing it? Am I doing something different? Yeah. Oh, I really like that. All right. Let's talk about that next group, long-term stress. So I'd like to distinguish burnout, which is when you're, I mean, journalists can get exhausted, but trauma-related distress usually 
is more about this, like you were talking about 9-11, like, like there's a specific aspect of it that has to do with the trauma. Then there's just, I mean, journalism work is hard. And I worry about burnout among really good journalists who are just tired and they become cynical. I mean, they're always skeptical and it's good to be a skeptical person. That's very important for a journalist. But when it moves into being cynical all the time, and so cynical that you can't ever be optimistic, so at its extreme, and feeling exhausted all the time, you know, that can be burnout. And I think that self-care is, we're using it for traumas, but self-care techniques are really designed for before things get extreme. I mean, most people are resilient when it comes to trauma, except if the load gets too much, or if it's combined with other things. But everyday coping skills with one's job is something that keeps someone resilient. And we don't talk enough about just the everyday management. How do you manage your emotions? What are all the ways that in my field, and I'm a field of self-care, that we don't focus enough on self-care clinicians, let alone when you move to journalists thinking about what do you do? Are there rituals? What are the ways that you celebrate the end of a story? You go from one story to another. Are you exercising? Are you doing all the things you need to do. And of course we know that you can't always do self-care. Sometimes you have to work on a story, a breaking news story, and you got to work for 24 hours, but then you can recover. And there's evidence to show that recovery is just as important. Doing activities away from work is really important for sustaining you in the long run. So having some kind of way of knowing what works for you and how do you mitigate stress? Yeah, I like that because flexible can make it attainable. Whereas like if you set up this rigid, like I got to do this every day and if I don't, it's all going to fall apart. Like actually allowing that it's okay. <laughs> you know, sometimes it's not going to work out. I think self-care sometimes people put it in the decadent category. Like, oh, this is something and you're you're shaking your head right now. So why? I think that's the problem is that people believe that self-care is an extra. It's not an extra. In order for somebody to function, you have to be at your optimal capacity. And if you're going to tell difficult stories with people who have been hurt, you need to be at your best. Nobody ever says that, you know, physical health is optional. Like, oh, no, you can't go to the doctor. You need to be fully functional. Part of the work is in reframing that mindset to, to as you said, it, this is on par with physical health. This is this is important. So how do you convince or help journalists figure out how to incorporate self-care into their lives, develop coping mechanisms, uh, you know, how, how do you do that? Well, I think about it just like, you know, there's all these journalistic tools, sort of here's some tools, some of them are gonna work for you, some of them are not gonna work for you. Here's a menu of things that might work for you. Simple things that we teach clinicians too, just like breathing. When you're in a tough interview, I mean, just consciously, if you breathe, it helps you it helps the person actually you're with because they may also calm down by the breathing. In some workshops, I have people actually write out their journalistic mission. You know yourself well. So if you think about a period that you've gone through stress and we've all gone through stress, go through that period and think about what did you do that really helped you? And what did you do that wasn't so good for you, but you did it anyway? So did you drink too much? Did you eat too much? So the next time around, try to do a little more of what worked and try to do a little less of what didn't work. I'm a believer in realistic goals. I know for me, I have sort of, I go through, you know, my spiritual, my physical, my emotional health, my social. And during the pandemic, my exercise is not as well 
developed as everything else. It's harder to exercise during a pandemic. And that is just the reality for me. So I'm trying every day to improve that a little bit, but it's it's not as good as I'm meditating. I'm connecting with other people. And I do think during the pandemic that assertively connecting with other people, even for the introverts is something that needs to be done. We know that social support is really important or giving support. You don't have to receive it, but giving it can be really helpful as well. So sort of taking an inventory of your life and trying to work on developing some skills to manage that. You brought up um, uh, drinking, drugs, things like that. Like In the profession of journalism, it's no secret that those things can be prevalent. I think it's a matter of looking at whether your use is problematic. And I would say that of all legal substances that um, one needs to look when is it helpful and when is it not. So I think one needs to look at one's substance use, and I would say the same thing for eating, sex. I mean, there's all sorts of things that in doses brings you pleasure, personally reasonable, but it's when it's problematic. One has to look at it and one needs to seek help if it really is out of control. Thank you to my guest, Dr. Alana Newman, McFarland Professor of Psychology at the University of Tulsa and Research Director for the DART Center for Journalism and Trauma. Music in this episode includes Spring Fling by Track Tribe and The Heist by Silent Partner. In addition to hearing news in context every Friday at 8.30 a.m. and 6.30 p.m. on KSFP 102.5 in San Francisco, you can hear it on Spotify, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, iHeartMedia, Google Play, Google Podcasts, Podbean, YouTube, and PRX. We're also on Facebook and Twitter at News in Context SF and on Instagram at News in Context. And you can find links to all of that at newsincontext.net. I'm Gina Valeria. Thank you for listening.